Guys, what's going on? We have Dr. Sean McFate. Um, it's always fun to say doctor, even though I, you, I, I assume I assume you don't run around having people call you doctor. Uh, depends. Uh, how you doing, man? What's going on? I'm doing great. You can call me Sean. Well, that's great. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> In the uh, Pentagon, they call me doctor, but on do you know, here we call me Sean. Yeah, they that's do. cool, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I could get you so even if I was a doctor. My father's a doctor uh, uh-huh. as, well, as well, and uh, he, it's always fun to mess with him formally, call him Dr. Dad or something like that. But <laughs> um, so, okay, guys, listen, uh, Sean is uh, an incredibly well uh, educated and researched human being and individual who's, who's done quite a bit. I'm going to leave the introduction to you uh, just to let people know who you are and um, why you're here. Well, I, st- I, was I'm from the United States. I was born in, I uh, grew up in Connecticut, New York City, and I originally wanted to be a violinist. And I went to a New York City boarding school that was a feeder for Juilliard. And my dream was to play Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto at Carnegie Hall at age 17. And I had my first midlife crisis at age 13 when I realized that no matter how much I practiced, I would never be a great violinist. Um, and so I gave the whole thing up, went to college, and then became a paratrooper in the U.S. Army in the 82nd Airborne Division. And people sometimes ask me, how could you go from being a violinist to being a paratrooper? But actually, it wasn't hard because the discipline needed for any sort of peak performance thing, whether it's an instrument like the violin or playing a sport or anything else – translates very easily into you know an elite military unit. Uh, I spent several years in as a paratrooper. I left the army and then became a private military contractor. Some would say mercenary. I wouldn't, but I've been <laughs> it's come up. <laughs> uh, and I worked globally, uh, mostly in Africa. Um, and then I had another sort of midlife crisis when I looked up and realized that there was no old people in my profession. And it made me sort of rethink some of my life choices. So I came back to Washington, D.C., got a few degrees, worked in a few think tanks, and now I'm a professor of war and strategy at the U.S. National Defense University, which is the premier war college for the U.S. military, Georgetown University, Syracuse University, and also at a think tank called the Atlantic Council, where I'm a senior fellow. And I specialize on strategy, war, uh, and international relations. Yeah, so absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, and well transversed uh, as you are. It's a subject that I think is, is, is missed by a lot. I don't remember having a good understanding of strategy in my and I, I went my my high school was no joke by 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 any means um, and in school I mean it's it's something that is applicable to life as it is to obviously to to war and politics and uh, these are the the things that uh, allow people to understand what to do why to do and you've been somewhat critical in the past of the United States for having as you put it strategic atrophy uh, in the sense that we possibly aren't flexing that muscle in the correct way. Could you maybe just expand a little bit on what you mean by that? Uh, yeah. I mean, what's going on in Kabul right now as the U.S. exit Afghanistan is a great example of what I call strategic atrophy. 
And um, I mean, look, <clears throat> the U.S. military is now infamous for winning every battle but losing the war, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan. And we, the U.S. has the best military in the world. And if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, when, let me ask you, Will, what do you think is the last big war the U.S. won? It's got to be World War II. Yeah, it's 1945. Yeah. If we are honest with ourselves, the United yeah. States, um, you know, we have the best military in the world. We haven't won in 70 years. So what's the problem? What's the problem? And uh, this question vexes me a lot because I have lost good friends in Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing trillions of dollars spent there and nothing to show for it. And, you know, as a vet, it's hurtful to see American image tarnished by low-level foes. So that's why I wrote this book, The New Rules of War, about what the problem is. And the problem is, is that we have the best military on the ground, but at the strategic level of war, we have a low strategic IQ. And that is not just general officers. It's all the, it's like the national security establishment in Washington, D.C. So it's all the the people who wear suits and the politicos and the members of Congress, it's that class that um, they, in my opinion, are just terrible. <laughs> They're ter the troops on the ground, the people on the ground are fantastic. The problem is senior management. Um, and they don't have a strategic knowledge because we don't teach that in universities anymore. So was there a time that that was because, I mean, as, as someone who, who likes to study history myself, uh, I mean, I don't know whether or not this is myth or not, but was it true that the in not possibly not ancient China, but in in the Chinese past, they wouldn't even teach strategy to their, I guess, subordinates, you know, to that it was considered too much of a gift to understand uh so was there a time then you're saying that we as a, as a nation uh, in the United States were teaching strategy or using it more? Or when did we and why did we become so rusty? What happened? Was the <laughs> World War II win so great that we just figured that we'll never need any, <laughs> you know? I think that's part of it. I mean, it's a great question, Will. I mean, um, we, can, we can talk about ancient China later, but in the United States context, um, look, I think we're more lucky than smart if we're honest, uh, we're more lucky than smart. So people like Abraham Lincoln was a great strategic thinker during the U.S. Civil War, but his generals were not. Uh, and unlike our presidents today, he had real backbone. He's kept on firing them until he found Ulysses Grant, who was his general. Uh, after 1945, I think we won not because of great strategy. We won because we, we had great resources. The Soviet Union and the United States had deep resources. And, you know, the, the Germany and others in Japan, just we just whittled them down through attrition. Um, we did have some really good strategists like General George Marshall, the U.S. Army. But Patton was not a strategist. He was an, he was an operational tactician. Uh, that's, so he was good at winning battles, but, you know, Eisenhower was good at winning wars. Um, but after 1945, I think there was a certain deal of hubris, of arrogance in the United States. Like, hey, we're the top dog. Every, we don't have to change the way we fight. Everybody's got to adapt to us. And then when we, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we had this, you know, end of history moment uh, where like everybody's going to look like America, America, you know, we're, you know, USA, USA. And 30 painful years later, here we are 
Um, and it shows that we just don't think about strategy. We, we assume that because we have, you know, better jet fighters and better soldiers, we can win wars. Meanwhile, our enemies have no jet fighters and have really bad soldiers, yet they're winning war, and we are failing to learn right now. And that's the real problem. Kabul is just the, um, the hood ornament of a bigger problem. And the, we observe lessons, but we don't seem to learn them. And, and that's because you know, we have a strategic IQ problem, and that's where we have to focus on. So I'm, I'm so curious, and I'm so happy that we're having this uh, conversation here, because there was something that, that struck me in all of the things that you have said that I've been uh, struggling with understanding, uh, and that I'm, I'm hoping you have an answer for, which is uh, considering that I, I understand exactly what you're saying when it, when it appears that all we're doing is expecting that when the next conflict comes, we're spending trillions of dollars in our, you know, and uh, on our military, and and expecting that when World War Three happens, we will overpower whoever it is, or even if it's in space, or whoever it is, we're going to overpower them with our might. And, and um, at the same time, uh, what you've stated is, and what's clear to everyone is that Russia and China are employing these sort of tactics where they don't necessarily need to fight us outright because it just wouldn't make any sense for them, uh, for us, for, for the rest of the world. And so they employ these tactics where they, you know, like in Crimea, which I, I, I've been to before when it was part of Ukraine, um, and where the, you know, where Russia used, correct me if I'm wrong, no mercenaries, correct, uh, to That's right. be there and basically annex that part of the, 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 the country. So uh, my question to you is, it's very clear that China and Russia understand this. It's, it's clear that, say, uh, a country like Vietnam understood that they weren't going to overpower us, that they needed guerrilla warfare was going to be their tactic in order to win the war. Uh, and so, but it, it seems to me that you're saying that the American government isn't, or at large, isn't putting enough effort into these subtle new war tactics or new war strategies but to me, it seems like when I look at things that have been done, like I read a great book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you know, right. you know, and it seems like we're, we're, we're doing that in Central America and we're, we're doing that in Africa sometimes. And, and uh, are we not employing it? And, and I want to throw a quote that, you, that you, you said in one of your, your talks, which was, we may already be at war with Russia and China, and the strategy may be to make us think that we're not at war. Uh, so... It, I, I really begs the question, are we really not thinking about that? And, uh, or is this just a, a veil uh, where people are just using the money and that money's going to people and it's fine because in the black budget, we're, we're doing great. We're crushing China maybe even, you know, is, uh, that's my real question. Oh, okay. So, um, A, we're not crushing China <laughs> and we're not crushing Russia but we do have a lot of money going to black budgets. It's just not, it's pretty, it's more heat than light in okay. what it's producing. Um, the US government, as you know, I mean, th th here's some factoids for the US. We, the US spends more on its military than the next 10 biggest militaries in the world combined, combined, including Russia, including China, including Germany, UK, you know, others, Brazil. And also we, over half of the U.S. federal discretionary budget goes to our military. The rest of the interagency, Department of Agriculture, Department of State, they get the scraps. 
So we clearly have a military mentality, a really military focus. And you, um, so th- that is part of the problem. You've, our, our adversaries, um, Russia and China, they are smart. They have adopted to the new ways of warfare. And they know that cunning can win over brute force. But we're still stuck in the brute force paradigm. Um, you know that, like, you know, you've heard this adage that generals always like to fight the last war, especially if they won it. That's what's going on in, in the United States of America. And our last war that we won was World War II, where brute force and attrition warfare basically won. And so we're investing in things that give us battlefield victory, like, you know, F-35 fighter jets and Ford-class carriers, which cost a lot of money. Um, And I argue those things are already obsolete. I mean, the last time, I mean, the last time there was a strategic dogfight was the Korean War. So why do we need more fighter jets, especially if they they have zero combat missions? You know, we've been at war for 20 years. The F-35 uh, has zero combat missions. And just to let you know how much money we're spending on the F-35, the F-35 is like the single seat jet fighter. We have spent U.S. taxpayers and allies $1.5 trillion will be spent on that program. Now, to give you a sense for how big $1.5 trillion, that's more than Russia's GDP on a single seat airplane. And it is, you know, and if it was a nation state, it'd be ranked 11th in the world ahead of Saudi Arabia. It has zero combat missions, 20 years of war someplace in the United States, and we're buying a lot more of these things. These things are already obsolete for war in the 21st century. So the U.S. is, we're still fighting the 20th century's wars. Our warfare has changed in the 21st century Russia, China, Iran, terrorists, international organizations, they all, I mean, criminal organizations, they all know that. And that's why the U.S. struggles, despite having the best military in the world, it struggles against the Taliban, ISIS, Russia, China, uh, because it is like lapped. It's locked in last century's warfare. Our adversaries have lapped us a few times over now. And all we're doing after coming back from Afghanistan is we're going to repeat our same old habits and mistakes. Um, And that's why, and China and Russia, the the first rule strategy is if your enemy is making a mistake, you get out of their way. You let them continue to make that mistake. And that's what they're doing. They're fighting modern warfare. We're fighting sort of, we think the future of war is World War II with better technology. And that's the problem. I see. Okay. Well, so then, in a sense, we lack the understanding that these almost infinite resources that we seem to have need to be directed elsewhere. And then that takes us on to something that I've, I've heard you touch on as well, which is that we are in this informational uh, yeah. information technology and in, in this world. And it, I, I mean, it would be strange to say because I know you have a, a, you've spent your time letting people know at least that uh, a lot of things happen in the private world uh, in corporations now. That's what's a lot of people, and I think the general public has to wake up to, right, is that there were mercenaries in Afghanistan right. and in Iraq, and we, we don't talk about that on the news. We just think USA, USA, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, and um, so are you saying essentially that we just need to divert our attention and our resources to information or? Well, you're right that victory now is not won on battlefields like Berlin in 45 or, or Stalingrad or Midway. Victory is won in the information space, right? Uh, I mean, look at how does, you know, how, Russia is a disinformation superpower. And they try to swing close elections all the time, whether it's the Brexit or EU election, I mean, uh, elections or U.S. elections. You know, we don't know if they're successful, but we know that they're trying and maybe they are successful. And the strategic logic is this. It's like, who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the mind that wields it? If you can get elected a head of state who's sympathetic to Russia rather than a hardliner, that's a strategic win. And they're not, you know, they're not doing this through war, you know, bombs and bullets. They're doing it through disinformation, through tweets and bots and disinformation. Deep fakes is now a big thing, um, which are easy to do. And so this is this is where modern warfare is trending. One of my rules in the new rules of war is that some of the best weapons do not fire bullets. And what, and we need to, and we're getting to a place now where cunning beats brute force and that's changing warfare going from, uh, uh, you know, it's changing warfare, which we can discuss, but cunning beats brute force. And that's what Russia and China and others are investing in. And the United States and the West, like the United Kingdom just bought a huge aircraft carrier are investing in brute force. And that's that's the problem. I, I still have to I, I will still push back on this one more time just to get a get a get an understanding. But it just I I completely agree with what you're saying because that that part does make sense. What I what I fail to see uh is that it's it seems as if you 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 would say that we're neglecting that that subterfuge, that that way of yeah. doing go, going but have we not employed these tactics to influence South yeah. America and uh, Central America? And yeah. I'm sure we're doing this in some of the European countries when we can, right? Is that maybe not, for instance, the, the military specifically doing it and possibly the CIA? And I don't know what the deal is with how much money and how much we're diverting to that, obviously. But that's where I, I say, aren't we doing that stuff already? Are we just not good at it? So, um we used to do a lot of this stuff. Okay. And we we know how to do it now, but our senior policymakers and, and lawmakers restrain us from doing those things. And for some very good reasons too. It's not just them being prissy. So let me let's backtrack. So at, during the Cold War, in the beginning of the Cold War, the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, the CIA did a lot of this subterfuge stuff, a lot of this sneaky stuff. I mean Warfare today is getting sneakier. War during the Cold War was sneaky. And the reason it was so sneaky is because nobody wanted to see a Soviet military go against a, a NATO military because that would go nuclear very fast. So what they what both powers did is they they played around the periphery through proxy wars, through CIA, KGB, all that stuff. But then the CIA was sort of going out of control. They had a lot of power, a lot of ability, and not a lot of oversight because of, of the secretness. And they 
the U.S. did some, you know, I mean, CIA did some infamous things from like Iran and, you know, Guatemala, all that thing. So the 1970s, uh, Congress basically neutered the CIA and, you know, for their sins. They, they said, you know, there's things like the Senator Church Committee in 75, 76. I was looking into 25 years of abuse and also during the 1960s riots. I mean, the, the agency and the FBI were doing um, you know, counterinsurgency on Americans at these civil rights riots. I mean, it was the abuses were massive, and two things came out of the 1970s for the for the CIA. One is they got they got neutered. <laughs> they they said never again. And here are some very narrow constraints. You can't you can't go beyond the left and right limits. And the second is this this general realization, which is true, that secrets and democracy are not compatible. And so that legacy lives on today. So even though if you talk to members of CIA ground division or you talk to special operations forces or the unit or Green Berets, people I talk to all the time, or even cyber folks, it's like, just hey, just give us the green light and we can do it. And they can do it. But nobody gives them the green light because of this, this background. However, we're getting to a point now in the 21st century where warfare is going into the shadows and big battles like World War II, that doesn't happen. It hasn't happened in decades. And the best way to defend ourselves is to get back into the shadows and punch back like we have done in the past. But here's the question. How do you do that with losing your demo- without losing your democratic soul? And that should be the national security question right now in the United States of America, not how many F-35s are needed or how to get out of Afghanistan. It's like war is getting sneakier. We can do this, but how do we do it without losing our democratic soul? I mean, that is a very difficult question. I don't know if you have the answer to that either, (laughs) because it seems, you know, Go ahead. Did you, did you have something you wanted to add? To uh, no, I, this is a question that one person doesn't have the answer to. It needs yeah. to be a national discourse, both in Western, in, in parts of Europe and North America. And part of my book was to sort of set up, this is the problem. This is the threat. It's not, again, how many F-35s, how many aircraft carriers, or how many nuclear missiles. It's how do we, we have the ability to punch back hard. We just choose not to do it. And there's some good reason for it. And there's some good reasons to do it. We just need to, as, a, as, a, as everybody needs to think more about this. This shouldn't be the purview of a couple experts in D.C. or, you know, not a smoky back room situation. This needs to be uh, front and center. Sure. And so one of the things that you, you mentioned that China has employed in, in doing this rather than just try and, and nuke us, for instance, is... You mentioned, and I, I, I ran across another source for this, which is essentially that they, China has more or less bought Hollywood in a, in a, in a yeah. way to not uh, have Hollywood portray uh, China as a national state power, um, you know, or to, to make us, to make Hollywood, it's illegal, let's just pretend in quotation marks, right, to make China the bad guys. Um, would this be something that we would then look to employ? Uh, back against, like towards Russia, making us the heroes, or is that how 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 useful is this you know play? Yeah, it's a great. So one thing that Russia and China do, the way that sort of, in some ways, we're already at war with them, but don't know it by their design, and the way they do it, um, and we'll get to to, to Hollywood. Uh, 
the way they do it is they wage war, but disguise it as peace. So it doesn't look like, remember, we have a World War II mentality. If it doesn't look like World War II, it's not it's not war, and we don't respond to it. So what they do, you know, Russia weaponizes its Russian organized crime around the world. They use mercenaries in Middle East and Africa because we don't take them seriously. China does things. They use Belt Road Initiative. This is an economic program in, in, in Asia and Africa, and it's, it's like this um, economic, like they want to invest in your economy, but it's actually like Tony Soprano or Don Corleone. It's like the mafia model where they get you addicted on a loan and then they, when you can't pay back the predatory loan, they take a city like they did in Sri Lanka. They took Sri Lanka's prize port. Like it, it was like their Rotterdam, you know, or their, their Los Angeles. And um, that's what Belt Road Initiative is. It's debt trap diplomacy. So we don't think of that as war because we are free market capitalists China is not. <laughs> and, um, and so they do things, they wage war, but they don't use traditional instruments of war, but they achieve the exact same things that war objectives achieve. So we should think about them a little bit more open-mindedly. And one of the greatest successes for China is Hollywood. So, you know, your, your listeners, I mean, if I ask them, like, when was the last time they saw a Hollywood movie with China as the villain? China as the bad guy. Don't remember a single one. Nobody remembers, not at least from not in this millennia. Yeah. And the reason is because China bought Hollywood legally. They, what does that like, mean? Legendary, well, they, they, they bought um, like Legendary Studios is, is Chinese owned. Just, it's Beijing controlled the way Huawei is Beijing controlled. Um, and also they have great market power. So the Chinese market for film is the second biggest market in the world after North America. And that means that if you're Sony Pictures or something, you want your movie to be shown in China, which you have to, you have to let it, the Beijing censors edit it, which they do and often very heavily. And if you have China as a bad guy, forget it. They, they kibosh it in the green room floor. And as a result, it's always, China's always the good guy. So like the movie, The Martian, you know, that, you know, Chinese, you know, NASA saves the day. Uh, and there's other movies like, you know, uh, you know, Top Gun 2, um, you know, um, Mulan. And so, there's a lot of movies out there. And then there's other movies where they they have America as the bad guy uh, and people cheer and they make, you know, one made $800 million. It didn't get shown in the United States. So it's like George Clooney money. And so okay, and you're thinking like, OK, fine. But how does that how is that war? And the answer is this, is that victory is no longer just battlefield victory. There's, there's many ways to win, and that's one of the rules in the new rules of war. There's many ways to win wars. One way to, wage, to win a war is that all of our grandkids speak Mandarin as a second language and are sympathetic to Beijing values. And that's kind of what the Allies did to Germany after World War II. So when the Berlin Wall fell down, West Germans all spoke English. They're all sympathetic to American culture, uh, democracy, capitalism. Uh, I mean, their Nazi ancestors would be horrified. But that's, that is a way of, of durable victory. Um, China gets it. The United States does not. That's, and that's so fascinating that that is, is like that because we do have a hard time. Uh, I mean, uh, was it uh, George W. Bush that's so 
now infamously declared us uh, vi- victory after <laughs> such and such amount of time, right? And right, weeks, you know, yeah, just weeks of yeah. of that. Uh, was that was that Afghanistan or was that Iraq? That uh, was Iraq in two thousand three. Yeah, he we 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 defeated the Iraq military in a few weeks, and you know, he was like, uh, you know, victory, and uh, and you know, remember it was Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, that day who said that Iraq and Afghanistan would just take a few weeks; it would never take even go to months. So, yeah. so uh, that's a strategic IQ problem. Sure, sure. Or, it, but my question then goes to: I mean, as a, as someone who wants to be and aspires to be a critical thinker, was it, yeah. or what, did they not understand that this was going to be a long? Did they have because yeah. in order to truly understand strategy, uh, we need to understand the goals and are the goals of the people in power necessarily the same as for uh, the the people that are there on the ground in Afghanistan? Do we do we. I'm not saying necessarily that the U.S. wants chaos in Afghanistan. I don't know that that is beneficial. But uh, when we say it's only going to take a couple of weeks for us to take care of this problem and we're just going to wash our hands and then right after they're all going to have democracy and capitalism and they're all going to go to McDonald's and it's all going to be great. Right. Yes. Uh, that was the that was the strategy. <laughs> OK. Yeah. That was the strategy. Uh, I, I mean, uh, it makes me wonder, though, if that's what we're not told or sold as the strategy. And then obviously the idea is possibly we're going to be here to do what we need to do for as long as we need to do that. Um, And now there can be a secondary strategy, which uh, would look like uh, what we've got going on here in in, in Afghanistan. I'd love to get your your, your take on what needs to happen now, because now that this pullout is happening, and I guess it's it's, it's official here and just by tomorrow or something like this, uh, right? what next? Because we can't come back, right? I mean, we're not going to have this. Uh, all right. Well, listen. I guess we just have to go back and 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 put some peace and and order into this and keep the Taliban down. And now they're fighting with ISIS. And so, what does Afghanistan, as as from what you've seen and based on these twenty years that have gone by, uh, not only obviously I know you're going to say that uh, our strategy was wrong and that's where we started off being being wrong. But seeing all this unfold is, is fascinating because it's almost as if we did nothing but improve the literacy uh, the literacy rate a little bit, help some women's rights a little. Uh, I know there's plenty of other things, obviously, that may not be able to be reported. And, and there are some – there's definite – there's always some, some good and some bad that goes unreported. Uh, but based on your take on it and where it's at now – what do we do next and, and, and what really went wrong? <laughs> well, um, what really went wrong was, again, lack of strategic IQ. We thought in 20 years ago, not we, the, the Bush administration thought this would be a quick and easy war and that our, our overwhelming military might would shock and awe our enemies into submission. That was the phrase, shock and awe. And they assume that, you know, whether it's going into Afghanistan or going into Iraq, uh, we had all the, the, you know, this big, like, bombing show over Baghdad. And we thought that would subdue the, you know, Saddam Hussein. It didn't. And the reason is, is that we had a lot of immaculate assumptions. We made a lot of bad assumptions because the people at the top were strategically illiterate. They would not say that. They didn't think that. But especially Rumsfeld coming out of the Vietnam War. I mean, you know, he didn't serve, but he was there, you know, he was around. Um, Dick Cheney, the same way. I mean, they they all should have known better. Um, But 
in some ways, national security, the way you become a like a, a big political national security guy in Washington, D.C. or gal, it's not your it's not what you've done or your expertise. It's who you know. I mean, they they kind of say that D.C., Washington, D.C. is like Hollywood for ugly people because, you know, it's all about personality. It's all about presence. It's not about meritocracy. And it's all about these nebulous things like freedom and liberty. And, and you know, and, and doesn't mean that you're a good strategist, uh, even though that's your job. <laughs> um, and now that's being questioned today amongst President Biden's, you know, Jake Sullivan, this new national security advisor. He's like in his early 40s. He's never done anything really strategic in his life other than being Hillary Clinton's aide de camp. Um, you know, is he qualified for that job? Many people, when he got that job, said he's not. And now this past summer, it seems, you know, evidence seems to be there. Um, so there's a lot of problems. Now, what happens next in Afghanistan, it kind of reminds me of what happened after the Soviets left Afghanistan. So they left, they were there for 10 years. We were there for 20. They were there from 79 to 89. Women had better rights. There was improved literacy. There was better education. They improved the infrastructure. They did a lot of things that we did. We don't give them credit for that, but they did those things. And then shortly thereafter, uh, it all went to you know, hell in a handbasket. And that's going to happen again. The Taliban can't even control Kabul, as we've seen by this new ISIS attack. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it's and they're saying nice things now, but nobody expects them to have inclusion. I mean, that's and I think it's um, they're just going to uh, turn inwards. The only thing that's the, the Taliban is not a monolithic whole. It's just a group of warlords and idealists and others united by one common enemy, the West. Once we leave, they're going to start fighting each other. It's going to go back to normal. So we've spent all this money and this time and blood in Afghanistan, and it's not gonna not gonna make a dent. We're going back to to nine, you know, nine ten, essentially, not nine eleven. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I wanna I wanna switch uh, gears because uh, I have another. I have a couple other specific questions on. We spoke uh, off air uh, about some Russian oligarchs that were using private mercenaries uh, and private military contractors, possibly, uh, I guess we should say, to defend uh, things that they owned uh, or possibly, you know, um, their property or, or let's say or their interests. Um, so could you break down even more specifically what it would look like just you can just as an example, like I'm a I'm a I'm a wealthy Russian oligarch. And uh, I want to defend some property I have in East Africa. How did they just pick up the phone? How does this happen? Do they need to get? Do they need to get the okay from Putin? Are they operating outside of his thing? Uh, what happens when there's a conflict? And, and uh, how much autonomy does someone truly have over a group of mercenaries? Can I march them on New York? Would these guys listen to me if I said, "Hey, you know"? I, I really want my Apple iPhone back and it's somewhere. <laughs> uh, that's what I'm really trying to get to get at. Well, so, yeah, I mean, so look, mercenaries are coming back. I mean, it's the second oldest profession and um, they were gone for like 150 years or underground. Now they're coming back. And uh, the answer is, yeah, you could do that. You know, it might be hard to do, but you can find mercenaries who are willing to do that, I don't think they get very far. So 
The first thing is there's no real difference between a private military contractor and a mercenary. If you can do one, you can do the other. There's no bright line difference. Uh, you know, the United States called Blackwater private military contractors. The world saw them as mercenaries. Russia calls the Wagner Group private military contractors. The world sees them as mercenaries. If you're a trigger puller or training other trigger pullers in a foreign war for profit, you're a mercenary. That's basically it, right? And there's also private CIAs out there too. It's a much smaller world, and we're starting to see them integrate with mercenaries. Sorry, did you say um, private CIAs? Yeah, private what, CIAs. What is so private central intelligence agencies? That yeah. So what, the way they work is they're usually X. Uh, it's another industry I used to work in. I worked in both industries for a little while, and they um, they're like X CIA operatives, X MI six or whatever. Um, and they run human networks and they collect publicly, like, like they call OSINT, open source information. They scrape the dark web for info and they're really good at this. And they work almost exclusively for, uh, for private interests. They don't like to work with governments because they work in the gray area of, of international law. And the last thing they want to do is have, you know, you're not going to attract an oligarch or a Fortune 500 company if you're also working for you know you know United States of America for London and say they do these shady paramilitary human network things um, and yeah you're seeing more and more like Carlos Goshen in Japan that's what what happened to him I mean he he was the ex CIA he was sorry he's he's the he was the former CEO and president of Nissan and he was arrested in Japan for corruption and he hired American Green Beret mercenaries who did basically a CIA op to extract him or they call exfiltrate him under the noses of Japanese national police, which are no kidding, and fly him secretly from Japan to Beirut, where he's at today. And Beirut, where he also is a citizen, has no extradition treaty with Japan. And that was done because he's a super rich individual. And he and, you know, what you need is you need to have contacts in that world. And sometimes lawyers have those contacts um, and others. Um, so we got when I was in the industry, we got a lot of business through just networking um, and reputation. Uh, reputation is the actual currency. It's not really money because reputation is all you have because it's an illicit economy. So, yeah, you could uh, an oligarch or a super, you know, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos or. Or so they could all do this, and um, they all have international interests abroad, and they are tired of of working in partnership with what they consider to be corrupt host nations. So, yeah, now that they, they know Exxon someday can have its own, can rent its own army, um, that's the world that we're getting to. That is uh, okay. Before I even just throw my 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 piece out on it, what. Are we talking, because I'm sure people are probably interested in 100 million, 500 million? Does he have to give up a billion dollars to go get uh, rescued uh, from the ah. race? What, like, uh, what does, you know, uh, people would be it's curious. It's hard to say. Of we don't really know. I mean, there's no, um, you know, there's no, no menu. <laughs> bureau of statistics for mercenaries and private intel, right? Of course. Uh, yeah. and, and this is one of the problems historically of, of this type of industry is contract enforcement because if you get ripped off, you can't sue, right? So whether it's the Middle Ages where popes used to hire mercenary armies, 
there's always treachery between masters and mercenaries. So we don't know for sure. I would say, you know, maybe $2 million is my guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's it. Um, and, you know, versus 20 years in a Japanese jail. So, um, so I think, you know, that's, you know, I, I think when, when these, these operations succeed or when the mercenaries kill the president of Haiti, there's a lot of people around the world who are like, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. And so their success, the lack of accountability, that is quietly encouraging this behavior and this market for force. Okay. And I see it. Yeah, that makes a bit more sense now, to, to especially considering that reputation would be important because no oligarch is going to trust that or to give out. And obviously, having that sort of money, they can clearly... They could they could do a test run if they wanted. They could pay you right. five million and just say go do this. If you don't do it, then they know, you know I'm not going to trust you to get me out of prison. Uh, exactly. So I, I see the motive there for them to also not work with the nation states and that it could be lucrative. It's just amazing to me to to have that realization that your nation state is not in control of everything. You know, uh, the, that's what we they kind of push that that uh, that view, but it doesn't seem to be the case that even they can function without the mercenaries. Right. So we're actually getting to a world by like mid-century, uh, mid-21st century, is that, you know, super the super rich can become superpowers. If you can swipe a check, you can now wage war for any reason you want, no matter how petty, uh, or stop one. And we're going to get to a point, I think, where states, we, are, we, we grew up thinking like in sixth grade that states are the geopolitical unit of international affairs. And that was true 50 years ago. But it's not true 50 years from now. We may get to a point where the Fortune 500, the super rich, anybody who could afford it can now wage wars and that states rather than driving war can become booty of war prizes of war. And we already see this in Latin America, right? We have narco states that are captured by narco gangs like Guatemala, Salvador. Um, and that could, you know, we see this in parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the, the, you know, the, especially like the Central African Republic region, um, South Asia, that Afghanistan will turn into that. And what I, I call this durable disorder, this is a new type of international relations where the world will not be state-centric. It won't, there, you'll still have strong states in Europe and North America and parts of East Asia, but most of the world will not be controlled by states. Those will be states in name only, or there'll be regimes inside of a state. Um, there'll be other types of governance on the ground. It'll be Some of it will be local, like warlords. Some of it will be like you know, corporate, all sorts of weird things. Um, and that will change international relations as we know it. But right now, places like Washington, D.C. are and London and Geneva and New York are still state-centric. Um, and that is part, whether it's warfare or economics or anything else, it's, it's state-centricity. And that is not the world we're walking into. So it's going to be a curious thing, though, yeah, to, to see Apple fight Samsung for some minerals over in... <laughs> sure. Wherever. But, you know... I, That's I, right. I, yeah, but I, I mean, you know, if... if if it does go the way that you're saying, I, I see no reason for something like that to happen. I mean, uh, I was going to ask, is there, is there any, I mean, like you said, it's, it's hard to know what's truly, truly happening, but are there any cases of this, uh, going the wrong way for, uh, rich or oh, yeah. really wealthy individuals who attempt to say, 
take over an oil field from Shell because the Shell, they, they tried to do something. And, you know, like you said, it can be petty. And I can imagine some of these, some of them, not all, obviously, just being like, you know what? Screw you. I'm just going to yeah. take your shit. And uh, that's right. Does that blow up in their face or? Oh, yeah. I mean, we see this happen with Wagner Group. They, uh, the, the oligarch in Russia, Prigozhin, who owns the Wagner Group, who also owns the, the, the troll factory, the cyber troll factory, same guy. He also owns an oil gas company. And he struck a deal with the government of Syria that with the Kremlin's permission that, hey, there was like ISIS in these oil gas fields. If you can clear them out, the oil's yours, 50-50 or something like that. And that's you know how contracts get cut. Sometimes clients go and masters, they go into business with each other. And so they sent the Wagner group out, 318 you know, mercenaries from the Russian-speaking world, and they met American Delta Force, Green Berets, and Kurdish militia. And it was a huge battle. And the Americans won and, and decimated the, uh, the Wagner group. Uh, so that's an example. Um, we had two, a year and a half ago that we call the Bay of Piglets. We had um, some former Green Beret mercenaries go down to Venezuela to have a coup d'etat, but they were completely, their, their organization was very amateurish and was completely infiltrated by the Venezuelan intelligence services. So when they showed up, the Venezuelan intelligence just rolled them up on shore. Uh, look, there's all sorts of things. So I spent uh, a year going through the archives of northern Italy, which is great fieldwork, by the way, because uh, that's where a lot of mercenary wars were fought in the European Middle Ages in southern France and northern Italy. And there's all sorts of treachery and treason of mercenaries ripping off masters and masters ripping off mercenaries. And I talk about it in my book, The New Rules of War, because there's you know, our four stars are incapable of thinking about warfare this way. But it's like, you know, warfare becomes a souk now where you, you, you use market strategies to outbid your, merce, you know, your enemy's mercenaries, bribe them. You can do all sorts of nasty things. You could send mercenaries into your, your neighbor's backyard who you don't like and then cut them free and not pay them. And they will ravage your neighbor's, you know, yard for food, um, devastating your neighbor. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And so... Uh, the answer is yes. Things go sideways very quickly. And also, look, out-of-work mercenaries start wars for profit. They elongate wars for profit. I mean, when you start linking killing with profit motive, it gets really ugly very quickly. But again, nobody's thinking about this in the halls of power. They, don't, they think of mercenaries as cartoonish Hollywood villains, and that's not the case. Okay. And, and so then... On the flip side, I think you, you mentioned, and obviously having my connection f to to Nigeria, that they were successfully employed to yeah. take out Boko Haram. Was that correct? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, just uh, as a as a preface to that, was that I guess you'll 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 answer this as to who who employed them, uh, and yeah. then does the Nigerian military, from what you know, I thought they were. They're fairly They're powerful, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah. why couldn't they just uh, squeeze us out or take care of okay. it? Or, you know, it's a great, it's a great question. So I just by way of background, I I spent a lot of time as a I'll say private military contractor uh, working in West Africa uh, several years. Um, 
because because you know mercenaries go where the conflict is. Those, those are called you know market opportunities. <laughs> sadly, very sadly, um, dark humored. Uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> I get it. So, so like yeah. So the Nigerian military is like the the superpower of the region in the military of West Africa. They have a no kidding military. Uh, it's a big country with a huge economy. It's very sophisticated. Uh, but for six years, the Nigerian military could not successfully deal with Boko Haram, this Islamic extremist terrorist organization, kidnapped you know school children routinely. It's it's awful, awful. And they're like in northern and eastern Nigeria, and uh, and and the Nigerian military they you know brutally even tried to subdue. They they couldn't do it. So in 2015, President Goodluck Jonathan, who was then the president of Nigeria, his administration secretly hired mercenaries. Some call, some came from, most of them came from Executive Outcomes Alumni Network. For those who are African, there, there was in the 1990s this really, no kidding, corporate mercenary outfit out of South Africa called Executive Outcomes. It was like its own private military Nothing's come close. They are super lethal, super effective, super good, not morally good, but good. You know, they got the job done. Uh, but they disbanded in 1998 for several reasons. And But they have like alumni, if you will, in Africa. And I was tapped into that network. And they tapped, good luck, Jonathan, somebody in his administration tapped into that network and said, we need somebody to remove Boko Haram with us, with our military. And they also pulled in Russian merc- Russian-speaking mercenaries. And they did what the Nigerian military couldn't do in six years. These mercenaries with the Nigerian military did in six weeks. They pushed Boko Haram out. It was They showed up with like Mi-24 hind helicopters. These are like flying tanks, Russian-made flying tanks. Um, and they were – but one of the reasons they were successful – is because also the main one of the biggest reasons people like to hire mercenaries, whether it's Russia or Nigeria or oligarchs, is because they give you good plausible deniability. Remember, warfare is getting sneakier. Weapons that give you plausible deniability are more important than just raw firepower. And mercenaries give you really good plausible deniability. Even if you capture them and they speak English or they speak Russian, you don't know for a fact who they're really working for. And they may not know who they're working for either. So, um, and also you can have the mercenaries commit human rights violations that you don't want your military caught doing because everybody has an iPhone these days, you know, Nigerian military could wipe out a village, but you know, if that goes to YouTube, that's really bad politics. But if mercenaries do it, the Nigerian say, well, well, we didn't know them. They, there's some random people, even though most people would like see right through that. Um, there's enough insulation so the international community won't act. So mercenaries are attractive for people who want to wage war and either can't, like corporations, or who can but don't really want to bloody their hands. Yeah, because I, I do remember when the, the Haitian president was uh, assassinated that I believe they caught quite a few of the mercenaries who had come from, some from Colombia, possibly. And, yeah, Colombians. Uh, yeah, so was it all Colombians or uh, – Mostly Colombians. Mostly yeah. Colombians, Mostly. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember a quote they had from one of the, the mercenaries essentially saying that they thought they were brought, whether he was telling the truth or not, that he, that he thought he was brought there to protect somebody. And then it got me thinking a little bit further on what could have possibly happened, where you could even have a mercenary group 
you could send someone, you could send a group, a whole bunch of guys in there to protect and only need two or three of them to be aware that the real, the real mission is to assassinate the, you know, the president or, or to do whatever the, the, the mission. And there's plausible deniability amongst even the people who are there. I mean, if someone starts shooting at them, they're just going to start shooting back. And, and so I, I find it fascinating to think that that's the way it got done. And to think that the, at the time that I was reading the article, that it was just some, they were, they were trying to say that it was orchestrated by someone who was potentially wanting to run for president. Right. That's right. It's just, yeah. just like, it's crazy. That's, and, and people see this, they see it was successful and they're like, well, we'll see more of that. We'll see more of that. Um, but yeah, they're Colombians. And, and so in the private, in the mercenary world, the private military world, merc, you know, a private CIA you have multiple shells in between the end user and the, you know, between both ends. Um, and so they don't, and that's part of the, that's the risk. And that's what you're getting paid for. You don't know who's doing, you know, who's hiring you for what reason. Uh, and look, I mean, we have American like ex Navy seals and green berets who are fighting in Yemen. Uh, there's not much accountability. I mean, you know, for mercenaries. So we're going to see them growing. I mean, those who say that, Oh, if we just have more international law, that'll take care of the problem. That's not going to take care of the problem. I mean, look at Libya. Libya is a mercenary on mercenary fight. We have Russian mercenaries, Turkish mercenaries, UAE mercenaries. You have oligarch, mono, you know, Middle East um, oligarchies there or, or kingdoms, whatever. Um, we don't know who's actually on the ground. And it's a secretive war, like all the other ones. Who's going to go in and arrest all those mercenaries? United Nations? No, they're not. And also, mercenaries can shoot your law enforcement dead. I mean, it's the one conflict. You cannot commodify conflict because you can't regulate it. So this idea that international law can fix it is delusional. So what that means is in the future, this trend of mercenaries, which has been steadily growing for 30 years, is not going to start, start to arc up. And because the U.S. used them so heavily in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're kind of quasi-legitimized. Do you see, and and maybe you 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 do or, do or don't know a whole lot about this, but uh, I find it interesting considering where we're going with cryptocurrency and the entire DeFi position. Could we get to a point where someone, obviously, it's not entirely anonymous as we as we now know, but yeah. Uh, you know, there's a good layer of insulation, as you as you put it, that you could possibly raise. Could we just have? Uh, are we looking at that also as part of a thing? You know, down fifty yeah. fifty years, where I just have some some Bitcoin, and uh, here you go. And I mean, it could already be be happening as compensation, obviously. But I could it see, is. yeah, I could see that as being a, yeah. a good way to employ. I mean, you know, the Silk Road. We all know the story that went went on. With, with that, but uh, you know, I can see something that would actually function, that it could function because I see the motive for the, the, the mercenary and to do a job and do the job well and to get compensated uh, handsomely for it. And I can see a market of people who would clearly just want to just put some Bitcoin here, just press a little button and this is the objective and maybe a contract almost even like that and, and you're done. Uh, I mean, if they can be, if it can be employed, I'm just so amazed that these uh, mercenary groups have the ability to get. Where do they get the weapons from? And where do they get these helicopters? How they must have some connection to some government. And yeah. there's some blend. There's some blend there that's probably very murky because it can't. Bad get pun, a paint, yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, that so you're right. So look, I mean, cryptocurrency is the currency of choice for illicit economies. Whether you're a terrorist, is or it not cash? Oh, I've heard that stated, but I thought that cash would still be cash. Ca- here's the problem with cash: is you have to move it, right? Sure. So, uh, so you know, you have Ukrainian oligarchs who'd fly to Cyprus on their G5s and offload duffel bags of of cash into Cyprus, Cyprus banks, and that's been closed up now, but. Cryptocurrency is much easier to move. That's why diamonds were a big thing in the 1990s, blood diamonds, because they're very small. They're worth a lot. They're hard. You can't really trace them. Cryptocurrency, you can move vast sums of money quickly, uh, and um, and nobody can really trace it well. I mean, you know, the NSA, the, the U.S. national, you know, there's there's they're they're finding ways to, to get around it. But cryptocurrency is ideal for you know good guys, but also ideal for bad guys. And it's become the currency of choice. So you're seeing that. Uh, of course, the the cryptocurrency market is very volatile, and there's a lot of other problems with it. And I'm, I'm sure your 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 viewers know that. Um, but the thing is, is that um, you know, in Africa, uh, it's not hard to get weapons in Sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, those MI24s were probably the same ones that Executive Outcome used in Sierra Leone in 1997, 1998, or, or the mid 1990s. Um, after like countries like Libya fell in 2011, Libya had a lot of arms in its arsenal. They all evaporated. We don't know where they went. That's going to happen now in Afghanistan. America is leaving a lot of weapons behind. Some of it very sophisticated. It's all going to be sold off by the Taliban and ISIS or stolen or warlords. It's all going to disappear. And we're going to start seeing it show up in weird places that we don't want to see show up. And so this world, I mean, it's like anything else. It's an illicit economy. All the illicit economies work kind of together in some ways. I mean, just like you have narcos dealing with, you know, human trafficking and you have now mercenaries. I mean, you're starting to see that all blend together in ways that are very disturbing. Okay. I have, I have two two questions more if you've got, if you've got the time to, yeah, to handle sure. it. Um I'm. Uh, I've spent a, a large portion of my career in in Europe uh, with. Uh, uh, I guess you could call it. I was in Azerbaijan for two and a half years, which is on that border. Oh, sure. I was in Baku, Baku, uh, Baku and okay. uh, then I also played in Morocco, which was which was awesome uh, as well. Uh, but I've spent a large portion in Scandinavia and a large portion in uh, Eastern Southern Europe, so uh, Serbia and Croatia. The Balkan War that happened in the 90s, um, I mean, the U.S., uh, you know, had its hand in, 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 in something. You know, I think we, we bombed Serbia uh, as well. Oddly, um, a, a player on my team, uh, I, when I played in Serbia, I played in Belgrade, uh, right in the heart of the city. Uh, one of the defenders on my team, his dad was in the hospital we had apparently been aiming for a radio telecommunications. This was the apparent objective. We either hit it and also hit a hospital that my my friend's dad was also in. He survived, uh, but you know that puts it puts a lot into perspective when you are walking down the street where there was a war just like fifteen years before I I got there. Um, you know and. Uh, the use of mercenaries. I'm I'm curious. Were there any uh, in the Balkans? If you have any knowledge of that, and two, given that that was one of the most major, if not the most major, European war that's happened in the last right thirty years. I don't know that anything trumps that war. 
Uh, what happened to those guys? Did they, did they right after just go, well, you know what, you know, and let's head to Iraq, you know, or, uh, somewhere oh, else. Mercy. What happened, what happened to those soldiers? They didn't just retire. Some of them, how did they, do they recruit and what happens there? And so that, that's, it's a two part question, but I guess just, you know, okay. were there, were there mercenaries involved in the, in the Balkan conflict for the Yugoslavia and what happened to yeah. the guys that were okay. The war's done. Okay. So it's a good, so the Balkan conflict in the 1990s now it seems like ancient history, but it was a very brutal uh, war. And it was also NATO's first real challenge as a defense organization. And a lot of things went wrong <laughs> in the U S and NATO and their own strategy. Um, and as you all know, as folks in the Balkans know that the history of the Balkans is very complex. and goes back centuries. Uh, it's very complex. Um, so when, you know, Tito died and when the, the, the Soviet wall, you know, Berlin wall fell down, the sort of the, the pressure cooker just blew out. And um, I don't, I can't speak for the Serbians uh, and mercenaries there. I do know that the United States hired, like I would say, a proto-mercenary company called MPRI. It's a, it's an American company that, uh, that basically tr- professionalized other um, militaries. Um, and that's a form of mercenaryism. And if you, you know, mercenaries do three basic things. They, they do direct action, which is like you kill people. They or sabotage. Uh, you do uh, sur- like strategic surveillance. You go to the denied areas. You go inside and you see what's. You walk the ground and ground truth it, and you shoot people who want to shoot you. Um, and the third is you tr- you train and equip, and that's an essential mercenary function. So M- MPRI was doing that. Now they wouldn't say they're mercenary, but that's what they are. Uh, and then after the war, they got. Here's the thing about the mercenary world, at least in the West is it sort of like Wall Street. They got bought by another company called L3. L3 did like technos, like communications and like they're like Verizon. And, and they bought this company and, and MPRI, they made a lot of money in the beginning of the Iraq war. And, um, you know, there's mergers and acquisitions in this world. That's really, it's really strange. Um, so those guys found work in Iraq, the Americans, you know, they started working in Iraq. Now, Serbians and others, um, they're probably now working in like the Wagner group. I mean, the thing about the Balkans is that, um, I mean, let's talk about the mercenary world just very briefly. So here's the way the mercenary world is set up. It's all illicit. Um, and you have to be inside the world or know people to understand this. It's set up according to language group. And there are three major language groups. There's English speakers, uh, Russian speakers, and Spanish speakers. And uh, those are called command languages. And those, like the English speakers are all sort of NATO culture. They fight a certain way. The Russians fight a certain way. The the Latin Americans fight a certain way. There are some smaller groups like French and Hebrew, but those are the three big ones. And uh, the Russian speakers are not like the Wagner groups is, you know, works right now for Russia, but, and the people all speak Russia, but they come from Azerbaijan, they come from Serbia, they come from that Soviet, former Soviet world. They are very good mercenaries in terms of effectiveness. Uh, the, Amer- the English speakers are good, but they're expensive because you're buying like ex-seals. The Russians are cheaper, but they're very good. And then the Latin Americans are the cheapest, but they're very good too. You know who's not good are Chinese. Really? Uh, Chinese mercenaries? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, they're terrible. I mean, first of all, nobody speaks Chinese except for Chinese, so they can't link up with anybody. Second of all, there's a lot of like um, radar, or, uh, saber rattling out of China now about their military, but they're an unproven force. I mean, the last time they went to war, I mean, they went to war briefly against India, but they really, last time they went to war was against the Vietnamese after the Vietnamese kicked out the French kicked out the Americans and took care of the Khmer Rouge and, you know, and they, and then the Chinese invaded them and they kicked the Chinese ass. Uh, the last time they decisively won a big war was 1948 or 49, excuse me. So like, that's why, even though there's a lot, you know, there's some other reasons you don't see a lot of Chinese mercenaries, but the merc- the, con- the the militaries that have the most combat experience with good training, uh, like, like, like Serbians, for example, or Balkans, they are in demand, and you're seeing them now uh, in the Middle East. You're seeing them in Libya. You're seeing them all over the place. Wow, um, that is yeah, that's crazy cool. Uh, yeah, I'd been dying to ask that 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 question because I knew that there's probably it's highly unlikely that it the, when when wars there's always fallout from a war, right? And yes. and I would expect that that soldiers and men knowing that this is what I do and what I do well, and I. Many of them, I'm sure, enjoy the life. And you hear, and when you speak to guys that have, have, have seen action and battle, and, uh, you know, they're obviously at, at times uh, disgusted or, uh, you know, uh, annoyed at things that they had to do or that they'd seen, but they also say, I felt most alive. I was most uh, into it. So it, there, it's, it's clear to me that that's something that they would want to pursue for a long period of time if they could, if they could do so. Uh, my last question is one that I pose to everyone, which is considering such hard study and such hard thought on your part um, to know what would be the best strategy for a, a nation. How has this helped you in your own life? How does this change the way you 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 choose? You know what to do, what's best for you? Because I mean, with all the books behind you, I can only imagine what you're what you're reading. If you have any great book ideas uh, for for people to try and delve into this stuff, I would I would I would love to to hear. I mean, we can just talk briefly to get a, get a list. But sure. if you're speaking to a bunch of young guys and girls that are trying to say, well, cool, maybe I should learn, you know, how to navigate through life. Life is, is a bit different and difficult and I've got a lot going on. How have you, how have you come up with, you know, with some stuff? Yeah. I mean, look, my journey from being a violinist in New York city a long time ago as a child to where I am now is totally unexpected. And I was like a pinball in a machine. Uh, I wish I could say like, oh, it was all meant to be. And, and arrogant people say that. But I, for me, it was like one catastrophe, catastrophe from the other. <laughs> Everything I planned to do burned in flames and opportunities I was open to kind of worked out well. So I think the first lesson, I was obstinate when I was a young man. I, I was like stubborn, but I would tell myself just to chill, take the hand off the steering wheel a little bit. And things, you know, it sounds cliche-ish, but, you know, things can work out and you can find a place, have some humility. Uh, and, uh, and the second is that um, I used to think when I was a paratrooper, I was very you know, America, gung-ho. And I, I think like our st- American strategists think now is like if we just overpower our enemy, like there's no problem that force alone cannot ultimately solve, Right. And I've learned uh, when I went to, when I became a private military contractor, mostly in Africa, how wrong that was. The most effective weapon or tool 
or instrument we have is the six inches between our ears. And that cunning can, uh, you know, you can be David versus Goliath. And that's what, you know, the U.S. has been Goliath for 75 years. And, um, and whether it's, it's warfare or whether you're in a, like a team sport or if you're doing politics or even in a relationship uh, or anything, there's all sorts of ways to be a, a thinking, critical thinking person, to be a critical creative thinker. And the, 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 the theorist in my world that I, I like the most is Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War. Sun Tzu is 2,500 years old, he's an ancient Chinese general. Um, his book, The Art of War, it's easy to read, but hard to digest. It's sort of like chess. It's easy to learn, but hard to master. And, um, and there, there are many translations of it because it's, it's ancient, almost poetry, where every kanji has like multiple meanings. So there's a couple translations um, you can get, um, and I, could, I should probably list them, but um, just, start with, just start with one. Um, and it just, it's about how you, how you think. And also in the back of my book, The New Rules of War, I have something called The 36, the 36 Stratagems by, of Ancient China. Ancient China has another like lost Sun Tzu who has these 36 strategies about how to use deception and knowledge some of it's quite devious and cunning. I wouldn't recommend it for personal relationships, but for life, it could be very helpful um, that Chinese business uses, that Chinese foreign affairs uses. But, you know, those in the West have never heard of this. And if you read these very, they're like simple one-liners, these 36 stratagems, um, it's actually kind of useful if you have a big problem about how you go about persuading somebody or getting this or doing whatever you want. And again, it comes down to being a critical thinker, being open to opportunities, um, and being cunning. But cunning doesn't always have to be devious. It just means, you know, be smart, not, you know, work smart, not hard. Yeah. And being well-rounded. I think that's, yeah, that, 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 that part, just to take a, a second to think, because you're so dead on with the, the mentality that we have from the West, that, that whole USA, we can crush and, and we can do that. And, and it's, uh. It's a product of you know having some success, uh, and um, I think it's definitely in everybody's favor though to realize that if you can see the other side and to see how they were thinking. Because if you're on the top all the time, though, there's people obviously always trying to figure out what they can do uh, to, to to climb on top of you, and they get very creative. I mean, you can get quite lazy at the top, and you get very creative at the bottom, um, and that tends to be the case regardless of in anywhere in sports and, you know, in business. Um, so I, I find it fascinating just the subject in as a whole. So anyway, we will put all of your, uh, you've written two books. Did I read the, I've written two nonfiction and three two nonfiction. fiction. Okay. Three oh, novels, you've written three fiction. Both. So I haven't, I haven't yeah. tapped in those cause I'm not finished yet. So I haven't, I haven't done a real deep yeah. dive into everything that you you've read, but I will definitely finish, uh, the book, we will yeah. list all this stuff. We will link out. Is there any place where guys can go to hear more about you if they're yeah. interested more? Well, uh, first of all, I, I recommend uh, of the fiction, my last book is called, the third one's called High Treason. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's like an international thriller. Uh, my last nonfiction book, uh, The New Rules of War, is, is it's nonfiction, but it's also written to be read. It's not written for academics or experts. It's written for everybody. 
Um, you can find out more about me on my website, www.seanmcfate.com. It's Sean, S-E-A-N, McFate, M-C-F-A-T-E.com. Um, and let me just say this. I'll, I'll close out by saying this, is that right now the West has a, strat- strategic, a low strategic IQ problem. But I kind of believe that not everybody can be a good strategist, but good strategists can come from anywhere. It's not linked to if you're wearing a uniform or if you've been you know, in the military for 40 years. We want creative thinkers and critical thinkers. And sometimes I think too many years an institution like lops, you know, lobotomizes people. So I think what I'm trying to start here is this, it's this like intellectual insurgency for good strategy for the world. And it can, it can come from good ideas can come from anywhere. And I want I want people to, to think that take that seriously uh, as you look around international relations, politics, et cetera. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. This was uh, a very much a treat for me. I hope you guys listening have learned quite a bit, which I know I know you will have. Um, if you want to check out more, just go ahead and go to the show notes. If you're just listening to this, it'll be all right there. We'll link to all of, Sh- of Sean's stuff. And if you're on YouTube, go right down below and check all that stuff in the description box. Sean, it was awesome. We will definitely have to do this again sometime. That would be my pleasure, Will. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Guys, we'll see you later. Yeah.